Section six of Myths and Legends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy LaFaro, New South Wales, Australia. Myths and Legends of Ancient Greece and Rome by E. M. Behrens. Section six Third Dynasty Olympian Divinities. Phoebus, Apollo Phoebus Apollo, the god of light, prophecy, music, poetry, and the arts and sciences, is by far the noblest conception within the whole range of Greek mythology, and his worship, which not only extended to all the states of Greece, but also to Asia Minor, and to every Greek colony throughout the world, stands out among the most ancient and strongly marked features of Grecian history, and exerted a more decided influence over the Greek nation than that of any other deity, not excepting Zeus himself. Apollo was the son of Zeus and Leto, and was born beneath the shade of a palm tree, which grew at the foot of Mount Synthus. But on the barren and rocky island of Delos, the poet tells us that the earth smiled when the young god first beheld the light of day, and that Delos became so proud and exultant at the honour thus conferred upon her, that she covered herself with golden flowers, swans surrounded the island, and the Delian nymphs celebrated his birth with songs of joy. The unhappy Leto, driven to Delos by the relentless persecutions of Hera, was not long permitted to enjoy her haven of refuge. Being still tormented by her enemy, the young mother was once more obliged to fly. She therefore resigned the charge of her new-born babe to the goddess Themis, who carefully wrapped the helpless infant in swaddling clothes, and fed him with nectar and ambrosia. But he had no sooner partaken of the heavenly food than to the amazement of the goddess, he burst asunder the bands which confined his infant limbs, and springing to his feet, appeared before her as a full-grown youth of divine strength and beauty. He now demanded a lyre and a bow, declaring that henceforth he would announce to mankind the will of his father Zeus. The golden lyre, said he, shall be my friend, the bent bow, my delight, and in oracles I will foretell the dark future. With these words he ascended to Olympus, where he was received with joyful acclamations into the assembly of the celestial gods, who acknowledged him as the most beautiful and glorious of all the sons of Zeus. Phoebus Apollo was the god of light, in a twofold signification. First, as representing the great orb of day which illumines the world, and secondly, as the heavenly light which animates the soul of man. He inherited his function as sun-god from Helios, with whom, in later times, he was so completely identified that the personality of the one became gradually merged in that of the other. We, accordingly, find Helios frequently confounded with Apollo.
Myths belonging to the former attributed to the latter, and with some tribes, the Ionic, for instance, so complete is this identification that Apollo is called by them Helios Apollo. As the divinity whose power is developed in the broad light of day, he brings joy and delight to nature, and health and prosperity to man. By the influence of his warm and gentle rays, he disperses the noxious vapours of the night, assists the grain to ripen and the flowers to bloom. But although, as God of the sun, he is a life-giving and life-preserving power, who, by his genial influence, dispels the cold of winter, he is, at the same time, the God who, by means of his fiercely darting rays, could spread disease and send sudden death to men and animals, and it is to this phase of his character that we must look for the explanation of his being considered, in conjunction with his twin sister, Artemis, as moon goddess, a divinity of death. The brother and sister share this function between them, he taking man and she, woman, as her aim, and those especially who died in the bloom of youth, or at an advanced age, were believed to have been killed by their gentle arrows. But Apollo did not always send an easy death. We see in the Iliad how, when angry with the Greeks, the god of the silver bow strode down from Olympus with his quiver full of death-bringing darts, and sent a raging pestilence into their camp. For nine days he let fly his fatal arrows, first on animals and then on men, till the air became darkened with the smoke from the funeral pyres. In his character as god of light, Phoebus Apollo is the protecting deity of shepherds, because it is he who warms the fields and meadows, and gives rich pastures to the flocks, thereby gladdening the heart of the herdsman. As the temperate heat of the sun exercises so invigorating an effect on man and animals, and promotes the growth of those medicinal herbs and vegetable productions necessary for the cure of diseases, Phoebus Apollo was supposed to possess the power of restoring life and health. Hence he was regarded as the god of healing, but this feature in his character we shall find more particularly developed in his son Asclepius, the veritable god of the healing art. Pursuing our analysis of the various phases in the character of Phoebus Apollo, we find that with the first beams of his genial light all nature awakens to renewed life, and the woods re-echo with the jubilant sound of the untaught lays, warbled by thousands of feathered choristers. Hence, by a natural inference, he is the god of music, and as, according to the belief of the ancients, the inspirations of genius were inseparately connected with the glorious light of heaven. He is also the god of poetry, and acts as the special patron of the arts and sciences. Apollo is himself the heavenly musician among the Olympic gods, whose banquets are gladdened by the wondrous strains which he produces from his favourite instrument, 
the seven-stringed lyre. In the cultus of Apollo, music formed a distinguishing feature. All sacred dances, and even the sacrifices in his honour, were performed to the sound of musical instruments, and it is, in a great measure, owing to the influence which the music in his worship exercised on the Greek nation, that Apollo came to be regarded as the leader of the nine muses, the legitimate divinities of poetry and song. In this character he is called Musagetes, and is always represented robed in a long flowing garment. His lyre, to the tones of which he appears to be singing, is suspended by a band across the chest. His head is encircled by a wreath of laurel, and his long hair streaming down over his shoulders gives him a somewhat effeminate appearance. And now we must view the glorious god of light under another, and, as far as regards his influence over the Greek nation, a much more important aspect. For in historical times, all the other functions and attributes of Apollo sink into comparative insignificance before the great power which he exercised as god of prophecy. It is true that all Greek gods were endowed to a certain extent with the faculty of foretelling future events, but Apollo as sun-god was the concentration of all prophetic power, as it was supposed that nothing escaped his all-seeing eye which penetrated the most hidden recesses, and laid bare the secrets which lay concealed behind the dark veil of the future. We have seen that when Apollo assumed his godlike form, he took his place among the immortals. But he had not long enjoyed the rapturous delights of Olympus, before he felt within him an ardent desire to fulfil his great mission of interpreting to mankind the will of his mighty father and accordingly descended to earth and travelled through many countries, seeking a fitting site upon which to establish an oracle. At length he reached the southern side of the rocky heights of Parnassus, beneath which lay the harbour of Crissa. Here, under the overhanging cliff, he found a secluded spot, where, from the most ancient times, there had existed an oracle, in which Gaia herself had revealed the future to man, and which in Deucalion's time she had resigned to Themis. It was guarded by the huge serpent Python, the scourge of the surrounding neighbourhood, and the terror alike of men and cattle. The young god, full of confidence in his unerring aim, attacked and slew the monster with his arrows, thus freeing land and people, from their mighty enemy. The grateful inhabitants, anxious to do honour to their deliverer, flocked around Apollo, who proceeded to mark out a plan for a temple, and, with the assistance of numbers of eager volunteers, a suitable edifice was soon erected. It now became necessary to choose ministers who would offer up sacrifices, interpret his prophecies to the people, and take charge of the temple. Looking round, he saw in the far distance a vessel bound from Crete to the Peloponnesus, and determined to avow himself of her crew for his service. Assuming the shape of an enormous dolphin, 
He agitated the waters to such a degree that the ship was tossed violently to and fro, to the great alarm of the mariners. At the same time he raised a mighty wind, which drove the ship into the harbour of Crissa, where she ran aground. The terrified sailors dared not set foot on shore, but Apollo, under the form of a vigorous youth, stepped down to the vessel, revealed himself in his true character, and informed them that it was he who had driven them to Crissa, in order that they might become his priests, to serve him in his temple. Arrived at the sacred fane, he instructed them how to perform the services in his honour, and desired them to worship him under the name of Apollo Delphinius, because he had first appeared to them under the form of a dolphin. Thus was established the far-famed oracle of Delphi, the only institution of the kind which was not exclusively national, for it was consulted by Lydians, Phrygians, Etruscans, Romans, etc., and, in fact, was held in the highest repute all over the world. In obedience to its decrees, the laws of Lycurgus were introduced, and the earliest Greek colonies founded. No cities were built without first consulting the Delphic oracle, for it was believed that Apollo took special delight in the founding of cities, the first stone of which he laid in person. Nor was any enterprise ever undertaken without inquiring at this sacred fane as to its probable success. But that which brought Apollo more closely home to the hearts of the people, and raised the whole moral tone of the Greek nation, was the belief, gradually developed with the intelligence of the people, that he was the God who accepted repentance as an atonement for sin, who pardoned the contrite sinner, and who acted as the special protector of those who, like Orestes, had committed a crime which required long years of expiation. Apollo is represented by the poets as being eternally young. His countenance, glowing with joyous life, is the embodiment of immortal beauty. His eyes are of a deep blue, his forehead low, but broad and intellectual. His hair, which falls over his shoulders in long waving locks, is of a golden or warm chestnut hue. He is crowned with laurel, and wears a purple robe. In his hand he bears his silver bow, which is unbent when he smiles, but ready for use when he menaces evildoers. But Apollo, the eternally beautiful youth, the perfection of all that is graceful and refined, rarely seems to have been happy in his love, Either his advances met with a repulse, or his union with the object of his affection was attended with fatal consequences. His first love was Daphne, daughter of Peneus, the river god, who was so averse to marriage that she entreated her father to allow her to lead a life of celibacy and devote herself to the chase, which she loved to the exclusion of all other pursuits. But one day, soon after his victory over the python, Apollo happened to see Eros bending his bow, and proud of his own superior strength and skill. 
He laughed at the efforts of the little archer, saying that such a weapon was more suited to the one who had just killed the terrible serpent. Eros angrily replied that his arrow should pierce the heart of the mocker himself, and flying off to the summit of Mount Parnassus, he drew from his quiver two darts of different workmanship, one of gold, which had the effect of inspiring love, the other of lead, which created aversion. Taking aim at Apollo, he pierced his breast with the golden shaft, whilst the leaden one he discharged into the bosom of the beautiful Daphne. The son of Leto instantly felt the most ardent affection for the nymph, who, on her part, evinced the greatest dislike towards her divine lover, and at his approach fled from him like a hunted deer. He called upon her in the most endearing accents to stay, but she still sped on, until at length, becoming faint with fatigue, and fearing that she was about to succumb, she called upon the gods to come to her aid. Hardly had she uttered her prayer before a heavy torpor seized her limbs, and just as Apollo threw out his arms to embrace her, she became transformed into a laurel bush. He sorrowfully crowned his head with its leaves, and declared that in memory of his love it should henceforth remain evergreen, and be held sacred to him. He next sought the love of Marpessa, the daughter of Evenus, but though her father approved his suit, the maiden preferred a youth named Idas, who contrived to carry her off in a winged chariot which he had procured from Poseidon. Apollo pursued the fugitives, whom he quickly overtook, and forcibly seizing the bride, refused to resign her. Zeus then interfered, and declared that Marpessa herself must decide which of her lovers should claim her as his wife. After due reflection, she accepted Idas as her husband, judiciously concluding that, although the attractions of the divine Apollo were superior to those of her lover, it would be wiser to unite herself to a mortal, who, growing old with herself, would be less likely to forsake her when advancing years should rob her of her charms. Cassandra, daughter of Priam, king of Troy, was another object of the love of Apollo. She feigned to return his affection, and promised to marry him, provided he would confer upon her the gift of prophecy. But having received the boon she desired, the treacherous maiden refused to comply with the conditions upon which it had been granted. Incensed at her breach of faith, Apollo, unable to recall the gift he had bestowed, rendered it useless by causing her predictions to fail in obtaining credence. Cassandra became famous in history for her prophetic powers, but her prophecies were never believed. For instance, she warned her brother Paris that if he brought back a wife from Greece, he would cause the destruction of his father's house and kingdom. She also warned the Trojans not to admit the wooden horse within the walls of the city, and foretold to Agamemnon all the disasters which afterwards befell him. Apollo afterwards married Coronis, a nymph of Larissa, and thought himself happy in the possession of her faithful love. But once more he was doomed to disappointment, for one day his favourite bird, the crow, 
flew to him with the intelligence that his wife had transferred her affections to a youth of Hermonia. Apollo, burning with rage, instantly destroyed her with one of his death-bringing darts. Too late he repented of his rashness, for she had been tenderly beloved by him, and he would fain have recalled her to life. But although he exerted all his healing powers, his efforts were in vain. He punished the crow for its garrulity. By changing the colour of its plumage from pure white to intense black, and forbade it to fly any longer among the other birds. Coronus left an infant son named Asclepius, who afterwards became god of medicine. His powers were so extraordinary that he could not only cure the sick, but could even restore the dead to life. At last, Aedes complained to Zeus that the number of shades conducted to his dominions was daily increasing and the great ruler of Olympus, fearing that mankind, thus protected against sickness and death, would be able to defy the gods themselves, killed Asclepius with one of his thunderbolts. The loss of his highly gifted son so exasperated Apollo, that being unable to vent his anger on Zeus, he destroyed the Cyclops, who had forged the fatal thunderbolts. For this offence, Apollo would have been banished by Zeus to Tartarus, but at the earnest intercession of Leto, he partially relented, and contented himself with depriving him of all power and dignity, and imposing on him a temporary servitude in the house of Admetus, king of Thessaly. Apollo faithfully served his royal master for nine years in the humble capacity of a shepherd, and was treated by him with every kindness and consideration. During the period of his service, the king sought the hand of Alcestis, the beautiful daughter of Peleus, son of Poseidon. But her father declared that he would only resign her to the suitor who should succeed in yoking a lion and a wild boar to his chariot. By the aid of his divine herdsman, Admetus accomplished this difficult task and gained his bride. Nor was this the only favour which the king received from the exiled god, for Apollo obtained from the fates the gift of immortality for his benefactor, on condition that when his last hour approached, some member of his own family should be willing to die in his stead. When the fatal hour arrived, and Admetus felt that he was at the point of death, he implored his aged parents to yield to him their few remaining days. But life is sweet, even to old age, and they both refused to make the sacrifice demanded of them. Alcestis, however, who had secretly devoted herself to death for her husband, was seized with a mortal sickness, which kept pace with his rapid recovery. The devoted wife breathed her last in the arms of Admetus, and he had just consigned her to the tomb, when Heracles chanced to come to the palace. Admetus held the rites of hospitality so sacred, that he at first kept silence with regard to his great bereavement. But as soon as his friend heard what had occurred, he bravely descended into the tomb, 
and when death came to claim his prey, he exerted his marvellous strength, and held him in his arms, until he promised to restore the beautiful and heroic queen to the bosom of her family. Whilst pursuing the peaceful life of a shepherd, Apollo formed a strong friendship with two youths named Hyacinthus and Cyparasus, but the great favour shown to them by the god did not suffice to shield them from misfortune. The former was one day throwing the discus with Apollo, when, running too eagerly to take up the one thrown by the god, he was struck on the head with it and killed on the spot. Apollo was overcome with grief at the sad end of his young favourite, but, being unable to restore him to life, he changed him into the flower called after him the hyacinth. Cyparasus had the misfortune to kill by accident one of Apollo's favourite stags, which so preyed on his mind that he gradually pined away and died of a broken heart. He was transformed by the god into a cypress tree, which owes its name to this story. After these sad occurrences, Apollo quitted Thessaly and repaired to Phrygia in Asia Minor, where he met Poseidon, who, like himself, was in exile and condemned to a temporary servitude on earth. The two gods now entered the service of Laomedon, king of Troy. Apollo undertaking to tend his flocks, and Poseidon to build the walls of the city. But Apollo also contributed his assistance in the erection of those wonderful walls, and, by the aid of his marvellous musical powers, the labours of his fellow worker, Poseidon, were rendered so light and easy that his otherwise arduous task advanced with astonishing celerity. For, as the master hand of the god of music grasped the chords of his lyre, the huge blocks of stone moved of their own accord, adjusting themselves with the utmost nicety into the places designed for them. But though Apollo was so renowned in the art of music, there were two individuals who had the effrontery to consider themselves equal to him in this respect, and accordingly each challenged him to compete with them in a musical contest. These were Marcius and Pan. Marcius was a satire, who, having picked up the flute which Athene had thrown away in disgust, discovered to his great delight and astonishment that, in consequence of its having touched the lips of a goddess, it played of itself in a most charming manner. Marcius, who was a great lover of music, and much beloved on this account by all the elf-like denizens of the woods and glens, was so intoxicated with joy at this discovery that he foolishly challenged Apollo to compete with him in a musical contest. The challenge being accepted, the muses were chosen umpires, and it was decided that the unsuccessful candidate should suffer the punishment of being flayed alive. For a long time the merits of both claimants remained so equally balanced that it was impossible to award the palm of victory to either, seeing which Apollo resolved to conquer, added the sweet tones of his melodious voice to the strains of his lyre, and this at once turned the scale in his favour. 
the unhappy Marcius, being defeated, had to undergo the terrible penalty, and his untimely fate was universally lamented. Indeed, the satyrs and dryads, his companions, wept so incessantly at his fate that their tears, uniting together, formed a river in Phrygia, which is still known by the name of Marcius. The result of the contest with Pan was by no means of so serious a character. The god of shepherds, having affirmed that he could play more skilfully on his flute of seven reeds, the syrinx or Pan's pipe, than Apollo on his world-renowned lyre, a contest ensued, in which Apollo was pronounced the victor by all the judges appointed to decide between the rival candidates. Midas, king of Phrygia, alone demurred at this decision, having the bad taste to prefer the uncouth tones of the Pan's pipe to the refined melodies of Apollo's lyre. Incensed at the obstinacy and stupidity of the Phrygian king, Apollo punished him by giving him the ears of an ass. Midas, horrified at being thus disfigured, determined to hide his disgrace from his subjects by means of a cap. His barber, however, could not be kept in ignorance of the fact, and was therefore bribed with rich gifts never to reveal it. Finding, however, that he could not keep the secret any longer, he dug a hole in the ground into which he whispered it. Then, closing up the aperture, he returned home, feeling greatly relieved at having thus eased his mind of its burden. But after all, this very humiliating secret was revealed to the world, for some reeds which sprung up from the spot murmured incessantly, as they waved to and fro in the wind. King Midas has the ears of an ass. In the sad and beautiful story of Niobe, daughter of Tantalus, and wife of Amphion, king of Thebes, we have another instance of the severe punishments meted out by Apollo to those who in any way incurred his displeasure. Niobe was the proud mother of seven sons and seven daughters and, exulting in the number of her children, she, upon one occasion, ridiculed the worship of Leto, because she had but one son and daughter, and desired the Thebans, for the future, to give to her the honours and sacrifices which they had hitherto offered to the mother of Apollo and Artemis. The sacrilegious words had scarcely passed her lips before Apollo called upon his sister Artemis to assist him in avenging the insult offered to their mother, and soon their invisible arrows sped through the air. Apollo slew all the sons, and Artemis, having already slain all the daughters save one, the youngest and best beloved, whom Niobe clasped in her arms, when the agonized mother implored the enraged deities to leave her at least one out of all her beautiful children, but, even as she prayed, the deadly arrow reached the heart of this child also. Meanwhile, the unhappy father, unable to bear the loss of his children, had destroyed himself, and his dead body lay beside the lifeless corpse of his favourite son. 
Widowed and childless, the heart-broken mother sat among her dead, and the gods, in pity for her unutterable woe, turned her into a stone, which they transferred to Syphilis, her native Phrygian mountain, where it still continues to shed tears. The punishment of Niobe forms the subject of a magnificent marble group, which was found at Rome in the year 1553, and is now in the gallery of Uffizi at Florence. The renowned singer Orpheus was the son of Apollo and Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. And as might be expected, with parents so highly gifted, was endowed with most distinguished intellectual qualifications. He was a poet, a teacher of the religious doctrines known as the Orphic Mysteries, and a great musician. Having inherited from his father an extraordinary genius for music, when he sang to the sweet tones of his lyre, he charmed all nature, and summoned around him the wild beasts of the forests, who, under the influence of his music, became tame and gentle as lambs. The madly rushing torrents stopped their rapid course, and the very mountains and trees moved from their places at the sound of his entrancing melodies. Orpheus became united with, to a lovely nymph named Eurydice, the daughter of the sea-god Nereus, whom he fondly loved. She was no less attached to him, and their married life was full of joy and happiness. But it was only short-lived. For Aristeus, the half-brother of Orpheus, having fallen in love with the beautiful Eurydice, forcibly endeavoured to take her from her husband and as she fled across some fields to elude his pursuit, she was bitten on the foot by a venomous snake, which lay concealed in the long grass. Eurydice died of the wound, and her sorrowing husband filled the groves and valleys with his piteous and unceasing lamentations. His longing to behold her once more became at last so unconquerable that he determined to brave the horrors of the lower world in order to entreat Aedes to restore to him his beloved wife. Armed only with his golden lyre, the gift of Apollo, he descended into the gloomy depths of Hades, where his heavenly music arrested for a while the torments of the unhappy sufferers. The stone of Sisyphus remained motionless. Tantalus, forgot his perpetual thirst. The wheel of Ixion ceased to revolve, and even the Furies shed tears, and withheld for a time their persecutions. Undismayed at the scenes of horror and suffering which met his view on every side, he pursued his way until he arrived at the palace of Aedes, presenting himself before the the throne on which sat the stony-hearted king and his consort Persephone, Orpheus recounted his woes to the sound of his lyre. Moved to pity by his sweet strains, they listened to his melancholy story, and consented to release Eurydice 
on condition that he should not look upon her until they reached the upper world. Orpheus gladly promised to comply with this injunction, and, followed by Eurydice, ascended the steep and gloomy path which led to the realms of life and light. All went well until he was just about to pass the extreme limits of Hades, when, forgetting for the moment the hard condition, he turned to convince himself that his beloved wife was really behind him. The glance was fatal, and destroyed all his hopes of happiness, for, as he yearningly stretched out his arms to embrace her, she was caught back, and vanished from his sight for ever. The grief of Orpheus at this second loss was even more intense than before, and he now avoided all human society. In vain did the nymphs, his once chosen companions, endeavour to win him back to his accustomed haunts. Their power to charm was gone, and music was now his sole consolation. He wandered forth alone, choosing the wildest and most secluded paths, and the hills and vales resounded with his pathetic melodies. At last he happened to cross the path of some Thracian women, who were performing the wild rites of Dionysus, Bacchus, and in their mad fury at his refusing to join them, they furiously attacked him and tore him in pieces. In pity for his unhappy fate, the muses collected his remains, which they buried at the foot of Mount Olympus, and the nightingale warbled a funeral dirge over his grave. His head was thrown into the river Hebrus, and as it floated down the stream, the lips still continued to murmur the beloved name of Eurydice. The chief seat of the worship of Apollo was at Delphi, and here was the most magnificent of all his temples, the foundation of which reaches far beyond all historical knowledge, and which contained immense riches the offerings of kings and private persons who had received favourable replies from the oracle. The Greeks believed Delphi to be the central point of the earth, because two eagles sent forth by Zeus, one from the east, the other from the west, were said to have arrived here at the same moment. The Pythian games, celebrated in honour of the victory of Apollo over the Python, took place at Delphi every four years. At the first celebration of these games, gods, goddesses, and heroes contended for the prizes, which were at first of gold or silver, but consisted in later times of simple laurel wreaths. On account of its being the place of his birth, the whole island of Delos was consecrated to Apollo where he was worshipped with great solemnity. The greatest care was taken to preserve the sanctity of the spot, for which reason no one was suffered to be buried there. At the foot of Mount Synthus was a splendid temple of Apollo, which possessed an oracle, and was enriched with magnificent offerings from all parts of Greece. Even foreign nations held this island sacred, for when the Persians passed it on their way to attack Greece, they not only sailed by, leaving it uninjured, 
but sent rich presents to the temple. Games, called Delia, instituted by Theseus, were celebrated at Delos every four years. A festival termed the Gymnopedia was held at Sparta in honour of Apollo, in which boys sang the praises of the gods, and of the three hundred Lacedaemonians who fell at the battle of Thermopylae. Wolves and hawks were sacrificed to Apollo, and the birds sacred to him were the hawk, raven, and swan. End of section 6